Hey, it's Ronia Kabansag here. I'm a producer at Stateside, which means that I help put together these podcast episodes that you get to listen to whenever you want. Being on the Stateside team has made me so much more informed about our state. In the past year, I've been to Flint, Dearborn, Oxford, Ann Arbor, Lansing, Detroit, and I get to bring back all these sounds and conversations I collected and share them with you. We're a small but mighty team, and we couldn't do this work without you. Please help power nonprofit fact-based journalism. Donate at michiganradio.org slash donate. Thanks. You know, I think the thing that gets overlooked more than anything is the sadness that those of us who are Detroiters and longtime Detroiters really had about it. This year marked 10 years since the historic municipal bankruptcy filing in Detroit. You know, I mean, we've had a rough go of it for for many decades and uh, not just reputationally, but in terms of what our lives look like in the city. While the city's financials are more stable, the woes of future pension payments loom large, and the city is still losing population and density. Today, we're revisiting a key conversation we had earlier this year. It's one about Detroit, its history, and the policies that have shaped it. This is Stateside. I'm Laura Weber Davis. Stephen Henderson is the host of Detroit Today on WDET. He's a lifelong Detroiter, a decorated print reporter and columnist, and founding editor of Bridge Detroit. And he's spent much of his career looking at the interplay of city and state government. April Baer spoke with him earlier this year. I'll let her take it from here. So when you reflect on the bankruptcy filing, what do you remember most about the mix of reactions that that people had? Uh, That run-up to the bankruptcy was a really dark period where city services had collapsed to the point where you couldn't count on police or fire or an ambulance coming to your house in a timely timely fashion. Um, And the bankruptcy filing, the decision to to finally almost say, we can't do this, um, I think was was an inflection point for the the, the depression really that that we had as Detroiters about how, how far things had sunk that we really had hit a, a new low and and an undiscovered low, at least for us before. Um, and I can remember the conversations I had with like family members and neighbors and, and people who'd been here a long time, all of whom really reflected that this was this was a sad moment for us. And and the uncertainty at that point of what the bankruptcy would mean. I think, compounded that. Now, at the time, Governor Rick Snyder publicly embraced the idea of building Detroit up, that this had to happen and it had to work to ensure the broader success of Michigan. And, of course, he endorsed and supported the emergency manager, Kevin Orr, who was the person uh, swinging the axe in a lot of cases, the grand bargain and, and the bankruptcy that followed. Do you think that Rick Snyder's approach was the right one in terms of getting people on board? I think there wasn't much choice. And I, I say that all the time when people ask about the bankruptcy. I mean, there was nothing about it that was pleasant. And there was nothing about it that was going to give us a lot of hope about the future of the city. 
but we had reached this point where where you know our finances were literally upside down we owed uh, more than 33 times what the total value of the assets of the city were uh, so if we sold everything 33 times we would not even be close really to have been paying off the debt and and again the the collapse of city services had had just left us with not much of a city at all from a municipal standpoint and so there there wasn't any other there wasn't any other way to get control of that other than uh perhaps you know some magic money falling from Lansing which it never does uh, or from Washington you know we needed to to reorganize the debt that we had and so uh, I think he framed it in the best way he could. You know, it's not about whether it was right or wrong. I think it was inevitable in, in many ways. There's a lot to say about the measures that Kevin Orr took to try to get city finances under control. But, Stephen, I wonder, when you think about the most consequential pieces of the grand bargain and the bankruptcy, what comes to mind? Well, I mean... I think the very first thing you have to look at is uh, the finances overall, right? Bankruptcy is about reorganizing your debt so that it's manageable. We went into to bankruptcy with $18 billion worth of liabilities on the city's books. We came out with somewhere between 11 and 12, right, right there. Uh, that's an incredible, incredible markdown. Um, and it freed up an awful lot of the city's budget to be able to go to services instead of creditors. So right there, um, that's, I think, the most consequential outcome of the bankruptcy. You know, at the same time, there were a lot of hard decisions that had to be made to get to that point. And the hardest of them uh, was about what to do with the, the, the pensions that the city had promised workers for decades, but had not put the money away to sufficiently fund. Uh, everybody in a bankruptcy gets what we call a haircut. Uh, reduction in the value of what you're owed. The question was how much of a reduction could these creditors, these pensioners, these former workers stand to take? Um, and we did a lot to, to soften that blow, the grand bargain, which had uh, philanthropy and, and some other interests come in to add money to soften the blow to them. That was all really important. But in the end, you have a lot of poor Detroiters who got poorer because of that. I think the grand bargain itself was a consequential achievement. Never before, certainly in a municipal context, had you seen parties who were not part of a bankruptcy come to the table with money uh, to make it better for the parties that were involved. The extent to which that happened, $800 million here in Detroit was just, I mean, it's beyond unprecedented. You need a bigger word. And then I think the, the reorganizing of things like the DIA art, art museum, the bankruptcy and the grand bargain saved that for us. We need to take a quick break. More with April and Stephen when we come back. Stay with us. Support for Michigan Public's stateside podcast comes from Lake Trust Credit Union, working to empower financial well-being for Michigan consumers, businesses, and communities. Committed to financial solutions and advice to support people and families. More information at laketrust.org. Support for the stateside podcast comes from Kalamazoo College, offering a personalized education that combines critical thinking, curiosity, 
and creativity. Committed to preparing students for meaningful careers that make a positive impact on the world. More at kzoo.edu. Stephen, at the time all this was playing out and reading back on the coverage, not having been living in Michigan at that time myself, it's kind of hard not to notice that the majority of the reporters on the bankruptcy beat were white in a majority black city in this first of a kind thing that we really hadn't seen in an American city of this size before. What, how did you see that affecting coverage of what was going on? I mean, it absolutely affects coverage. It affected coverage of everything uh, in the city of Detroit for a long time. It wasn't just that the, the reporters covering the bankruptcy were non-black. It's that the paper was overwhelmingly non-black or white in a, in a majority black city. And that's been true for a really long time and forever, really, in Detroit. Two things come to mind about that. One is uh, the, the Detroit Journalism uh, Collaborative. That, that came out of the bankruptcy. The Ford Foundation and the Knight Foundation dropped a lot of money in Detroit to lift up the journalism of small nonprofit organizations, uh, news organizations in the in the city. They had much more diverse staffs than the, the two dailies. That was that was key. And then really um, the creation of Bridge Detroit three years ago is is an outcome of that collaborative. The end of that collaborative led us the creation of Bridge Detroit, where one of our missions and one of our uh, objectives is to make sure that we have a staff that reflects the population of the city. Um, uh, things are different in Detroit now on the journalism landscape than they were then. I think the fact that you had this mismatch between uh, the backgrounds of the reporters who covered the bankruptcy and, and what was happening to the people in the city uh, inspired uh, a lot of that change. Yeah. Um, you, you've said a couple times as we've been talking about the fact that there were not a lot of great choices that were going to end with everyone feeling satisfied through this process. Today, you know, the Detroit we see, yes, there are problems. There is also a downtown that is thriving and, and a lot, a lot of new housing, certainly not all of it for Detroiters in the city. And there's this commercial real estate landscape in which some of the bond insurers are are major players in real estate holdings in the city now. In the hindsight of all this, given the, the distribution of pain, I guess, in what had to happen in reorganizing the city's finances, that, that we came away with something that I guess you yourself, I'm curious about how you are living with this. You know, I always said, and this is true, bankruptcy is a very finite prescriptive tool. It's, a, it's an aid for uh, institutions or, or governments that have gotten themselves twisted up in their finances to get untwisted. The bankruptcy did that. And it, it also did some other things because you had all of this help from outside. At the end of the bankruptcy, I remember writing a column about what all of this meant to those of us who are here. And I, I said it was a call to us to figure out how to take advantage of that gift that we were essentially given by this tool, a chance to do things differently, to figure out how to do them differently so that they did benefit the people who are here. I think there are lots of examples of 
that happening. Uh, they are much smaller than the things that are happening downtown. Uh, they, they are not as widely successful, I think, as we would like them to be yet. Um, but it is up to us in Detroit to figure out how to translate this enthusiasm for investment in downtown, which was also an outgrowth of the bankruptcy. We knew that was going to happen as soon as we got out. Uh, but it's our job to figure out how to make that matter to people who live here more. It, it, it's the mayor's job, first and foremost. It's the city council's job. And those of us who are working in neighborhoods to make things better for people, this was a chance to reset. And we did. We just got to make sure that that reset matters as much as it can to the people who live here. And, and on that count, we have not succeeded to the extent that I think we would all want to yet. Yeah. Is there anything that you feel like you've changed your mind about in the years since the bankruptcy, having seen in hindsight what some of the what some of the consequences were, what was going to happen with home ownership in the city, what was going to happen with commercial real estate? You know, I, the blow that pensioners took, the money that they lost has has had a ripple effect uh, on lots of other problems that we have here in the city of Detroit, the tax foreclosures that, that have happened over the last 10 years, some 100,000 or more, I think, are tied pretty closely to people losing the ability to, you know, to keep their houses. But the water shutoffs that happened, which I, I always thought were a bad idea, that's awful, awful public policy. Uh, it was the way they decided to, to shore up the water department uh, financially. But a lot of that trouble goes to the to the pensioners. I, I do wish that we could have done more. Uh, could we have gotten more out of philanthropy? Could we have pressed corporations uh, who were part of the city at that point to lend financial assistance to soften that blow even more and shore them up? Um, you know, the pensioners were not at fault for the things that happened. Certainly the people who managed their pensions played a role in in creating the problem, but that's not the people themselves. And and that's the people in the city. I mean, most of them were living in the city at the time. Um, I think if we could go back again, maybe we would have spent more time trying to raise that $800 million um, to $20 million or something like that uh, as a way to, to really make a difference so that uh, they wouldn't suffer the way they have, and that their suffering wouldn't have caused the exacerbation of other problems for for all of us in Detroit. Stephen, before we let you go, what's on your mind about the state of the city's finances right now and the, the greatest challenges it, it's going to face in terms of money in the coming years? Well, the projections at the end of the bankruptcy about revenue have all pretty much come true. It's been pretty close to what, what they thought was going to happen. That's good news. Uh, we, we have more revenue than, than we had before, and we get to spend more of it on services than on debt because of the bankruptcy. So that's that's the plus. I think the, the, the minus or the, the detracting fact is, is that... Um, the cost of the pensions that we are still carrying has gone up much more than we predicted. Some of that is about people living longer, and there's some other factors. And so I worry about sustaining 
even at the reduced level that we have them, the pensioners who who are still reliant on on that money to to manage their lives. Uh, I think that is a that is a lingering issue that some federal money has spelled us from for a bit. But when that goes away, I think we're going to have to take a hard look at at how we do things. Um, you know, the growth in in investment in the city, uh, in, in home ownership, all of those things should also pay dividends down the road. But will they be enough to be able to sustain uh, that that liability, which it still is, and it it, it will always be. Um, I don't think we know the answers to that yet. We won't see it clearly until all this federal money that everybody is swimming around in is spent and, and goes away. Um, but but I think that's the that's got to be the concern in the in both the short and the long term. Hey, Stephen, it's always great talking to you. Thank you so much. Yeah, thanks for having me, April. That's the Stateside Podcast for today. We're powered by Michigan Radio, which is powered by people like you. If you can donate to support this podcast, please donate at michiganradio.org slash donate. Today's episode was produced by Rachel Ishikawa. Other producers on our show are Mike Blank, Ronia Kabansag, Mercedes Mejia, and April Van Buren. Interns for the show are Olivia Meradian and Lauren Neong. Music for the show comes from Blue Dot Sessions and Audio Network. Thanks so much for listening. Hi, I'm Rebecca Williams. I'm Lester Graham. We've been working on a big project about Great Lakes birds called the Bird Connection. It will look at ducks and trumpeter swans. Egrets and herons. And piping plovers. Yes! We'll discuss what we've discovered at a Michigan Public Issues and Ale event. Including how some problems for birds are problems for people. It's at Arbor Brewing Company in Ypsilanti the evening of May 21st at 7. You can register at michiganpublic.org.